Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, this is uh, Paul Axton, and today I'm here with Matt. And Matt and I are going to discuss the issue of shame. And it's one that we've kind of been on a long journey uh, together with. And I really wanted to Matt to to be the one to do this podcast with me because I think the work that I've done on shame that he's absorbed and almost he's gone beyond uh, what my own understanding. And I think in his experience, he's appreciated it. Uh, I, I hope it speaks to people in a healing sort of fashion. I think that this is a key understanding, a key insight then that will open scripture up in, in a new fashion and make it a, the, the practical aspect of it, I think, comes into focus with the recognition of the primacy of shame. Have I stated that correctly, Matt? I think so. Uh, for me, my understanding of Christianity was mostly centered on the resolution to the problem of guilt uh, before I started sitting in on your classes. Um, that is, is that the way I understood the atonement, uh, you know, and most of Christian theology and really just the incarnation and the rest of it was centered upon, you know, that I had transgressed the law and that the primary thing that Jesus had come to sort of address uh, was the issue of my guilt or maybe even our collective guilt as a human race. Um, and I do think that that's part of it, of course. But, you know, once I started to understand what you were doing in your classes and you were saying, okay, well, let's start to talk about shame. I, I think uh, everyone's, I, I, I can notice almost everybody's ears sort of perk up because I think that whenever we talk about guilt, um, maybe we can sort of abstract the conversation a little bit. But I think that everybody understands, at least on some level, uh, what shame is. And it's almost like we never talk about it. And, and then once you start looking into the literature, people like Gershon Kaufman and other people say that there's a shame about shame, uh, even in the even in the, you know, theological studies, uh, in anthropology and in psychoanalytic literature, that there's uh, this shame about shame. And so it's kind of overlooked. And so whenever you started... Uh, taking us through uh, the different dimensions of shame, starting with the scriptures and showing us, well, this is how the Bible starts and how the narrative of the scriptures functions, it, it, you know, in as much as Genesis 3 introduces us to the concept, really not so much of guilt, but, you know, whenever Adam and Eve sin, the first thing that they realize is that they're naked and ashamed. And, of course, in your... Um, for lack of a better word, your system of theology, you know, you want to put the cross of Christ at the center of it, which of course is a sort of shameful uh, culmination of, uh, you know, the salvific work of Christ. And so I just, we just thought it would be helpful, you and I, to, to maybe have that conversation and let other people in on what I know has been a great agent of healing for me and for so many other people to say that, uh, that Jesus doesn't only just take away our sort of objective guilt before God, but that he can also help us to deal with our sort of subjective existential 
experience our lived reality of shame that in your work you very much linked with death. Maybe the difference between guilt and shame and some of the work that you've done and the difference that it might bring out in our understanding of what salvation is. By stating it with shame, I think immediately the texture of the conversation shifts. With guilt, you're talking about a legal category, the transgression of the law, and it can be objectified, and it is in some way partial. It's not holistic. And it's not necessarily pertains to your own subjectivity or the way in which your subjectivity is connected to other people. That is, it's a kind of abstract concept. So what the, the shift does when you begin to talk about shame, first of all, it's holistic. It pertains to who we are in our subjectivity, but it connects that subjectivity. I mean, this is the obvious, you know, in the story of Adam and Eve, that nakedness and shame are interconnected that they become aware of something. You know, this is pointed out that they were naked but not ashamed in the beginning, and then they, were, they became ashamed. And that then is the explanation for their antagonism toward one another, toward God, toward creation itself, or between them and creation, and even a demonstrable antagonism within the self. And of course, this is uh, the reading that we're going to get in the New Testament. But I think it's a consistent reading that then plugs in to the Old Testament literature in a way that guilt never did. Once you are open to the picture of shame, we understand that as in Genesis, this is linked to death. The idea is or the day that you eat of it, you know, you will die. Well, did they die? Well, they certainly experienced death, and shame and death are linked. I think shame is what it feels like to die. This ties it into a lot, a lot of psychoanalytic literature, and of course in psychoanalysis, there is a kind of renewal of understanding of shame as the primal negative emotion. And so that was the, that's kind of the interesting thing. There has been a turn back to, you can read in secular literature, people often begin with the story of Genesis, uh, not necessarily because they believe it, but because it locates the failure, the human failure, in this experience of an alienating shame. And once you, once you put that into place, a lot of other things like the idea of what our problem is and the solution is in Christ, that naked and ashamed, you know, will become clothed in Christ. And those are the final scenes, the robes of righteousness that um, it's not that there is a denial of the reality of this experience, but in some way there is an acknowledgement that this experience is primary. It's, a, it's, a, it's almost, you could almost say it's an ontological reality about what happens to us uh, and that it is this reality. 
more than anything else, this experience that we can describe and we can lay out the facets of the experience, I think more than anything else, this describes the human problem and the human predicament. Yeah, and maybe even uh, the way that we do human identity. I think at least for, for me and many, for many others, uh, that, you know, there's this uh, quote by Gershon Kaufman where she says that guilty people feel that they have done some specific thing that is wrong or bad, whereas their shame counterparts have to face an unbearable sense that their whole self is bad. So there really is kind of a profound difference there where the, the guilt is maybe something that's extrinsic you know, to the personhood, whereas shame is felt as sort of an ontological condition uh, of reality and identity. And I think that a lot of people really struggle, you know, just in very uh, simple terms. People struggle with shame. Um, and we, this morning in our class for the Forging Plowshares, uh, the Bible Institute, we had the class when we were talking about the importance of, of narrative for theology and, you know, the Bible starts with creation and then what we call the fall. And as you were just saying, well, the first thing that they notice is uh, that, that, that when they sin is that they're naked and ashamed. And there's this whole process of sort of disintegration of their personalities. The first time in the Bible where the I arises, there is no I before the fall. So could you talk a little bit about how shame functions for us as a sort of identity as far as the scriptures are concerned? Yeah, I really like the, the you, you, you're the one that used the word disintegration, and I really like that as a picture of what is taking place that shames what it feels like to fall apart, that you don't hold together. Once you see this, by the way, it's just, you know, it's there in Sartre, it's there in a, a great deal of psychoanalytic analytic literature, but it, it is that feeling of not being enough that you get of in some way lacking being of, uh, of course, the, the immediate imp impulse is to hide or to cover up. You know, they cover up before one another. They begin to hide. And then when God comes on the scene, they would just run and hide completely because they recognize that the cover up that they could perform between one another is not going to work with God. And so the, the idea here is I think that what we're seeing is then uh, the birth of, uh, and, and maybe this is uh, birth, here's the wrong word, the death of humanity uh, comes about with the eye. And I don't, you know, I think we can misread this or misinterpret this. Uh, I don't mean this like I as in selfishness or simply that. But I mean it the way that Paul is going to treat it in Romans, but also the way Lacanian psychoanalysis treats the eye. That is, the eye is not a proclivity that we have, that, that, that we can solve and cure the eye. The eye itself, as we have it, and this is demonstrated in Adam, you know, who his first four sentences all contain the word I. I ran, I hid, I was afraid. The picture that Paul is going to reduplicate is then the, the formation of this I as a product of, I think, the falling apart. 
So what is it that's being grabbed onto here? Obviously, it's a turn from life. It's a turn from the other, from, you know, Adam and Eve turn from one another. Uh, but, of course, what Paul is describing in Romans 7 is this kind of caving inward in which the self becomes an unobtainable object. This is the way that Lacan and Zizek and Freud, they're all going to begin to describe the primary impetus of, of human beings is to in some way obtain themselves. And the ego is the kind of the lure, the object, uh, the object in the mirror, that in some way you would obtain yourself. But of course, the whole point of it is that it's a misrecognition. It's an imaginary notion of the self in Lacanian language. He calls the ego the imaginary. I think that's very Pauline, that the I, as Paul says, has been crucified in Christ. And how, how you work this out, you know, how you describe this, I think is that there is a new character formation. There is a new person that emerges. But maybe we have to recognize first how this dynamic of the I uh, is really behind, first of all, fear. It's behind desire. You know, what is it that desire desires? It would obtain itself then by obtaining the I. Uh, it's behind the cover-up, you know, what is the cover-up? Well, that's pride, and pride is often pictured as the primary problem of human beings. I think that that gets at it, but I think it doesn't go deep enough in that the impetus to pride to a kind of false identity is already there in the shame. You cannot endure prolonged shame. Uh, literally, this in psychoanalysis, it is recognized that people that are continually exposed to a shame experience are going to react either in a kind of self-violent, suicidal manner, or they're or they're going to be be, be react in a violent manner toward others. But the point is that literally, psychologically, you cannot endure prolonged shame. What the whole impetus of human society, of human personality, is in some way to rid ourselves of this, to cover it up, to solve this. This is desire. This is fear. This is uh, the underlying human uh, drive. Okay, wow. So you're saying that the shame doesn't only function on a personal or individual level, but also corporately? Yeah, I think that that's the whole point of the underlying impetus behind violence. I think that's the story of, obviously, it's the story of Adam and Eve, but it's the story of Cain and Abel. And I think this does tie into Girardian scapegoating theory, that why does Cain kill Abel? Well, in some way, he, would, he, he sees that uh, he would obtain what Abel has and what he does not have. And the way that he would obtain it is through taking his position. There is almost a kind of uh, a desire for owning or, or being the other or obtaining the being of the other. And so I think that the murderous generation that follows in Cain's footstep, that it is the shame experience that is behind a kind of psychopathic or sociopathic killing. I think that it is shame that explains 
the story of the Tower of Babel, that they would establish themselves. That's always the uh, idea, that they would make a name for themselves. Shame is what it feels like to not endure, to fall apart. It's the, you know, in the Psalms, it's going to be be linked directly to the falling apart of death. And so to establish a kind of indestructible tower is, you can think of that tower as the drive that we would have for the ego, that here is what society would do for us that perhaps we cannot do for ourselves. And so, yes, I think it's a corporate project that comes together that we can experience this subjectively that, you know, or I think corporately that we can make a name for ourselves. That's the, the language of Genesis. So, yes, I think that, it, it, that shame is the prime. Maybe emotion is not enough because it may be a, an experience. In other words, it is the experience of death. Yeah, and, and later we're going to get to, of course, you know, God's son enduring the shame of the cross as in some way uh, providing a resolution, you know, to this. But I, you do a really good job, and I, I want you to kind of, if you would, to touch upon you know, some of the other narratives in the Old Testament, so the Abraham and Sarah story, and kind of moving on through and take us up to the incarnation, then, you know, how is God going to bring a resolution to this awful predicament? Yeah, once you you see this thing, you know, it's just, it's pervasive, that what is described as the ultimate shame experience in the Old Testament, and it's not clear that they had a notion of afterlife and so the idea of establishing a name for yourself is you know chapter 11 then chapter 12 we have the opening of the story of abraham or abram and of course the picture is that here is someone who normally the way that we would make a covering or cover for ourselves is in and through it's culturally it's through the family and it's through all of these things that normally are provided to cover shame, that Abraham is denied. He has to leave his home, his country. And of course, in the process, he's, it, it's a religious experience that he's leaving behind. The Tower of Babel religion, uh, I mean, what is the Tower of Babel? It's everything. It's, it's, a, it's a society, but if, it is the marker of several things in Genesis. But we see that after Babel, that we have the rise of idolatrous religion. So the peculiar religious impulse that we see at Babel is reduplicated. And I think that's what Abraham is being called out of. So what is the ultimate shame experience? It's to be without home, without country, and to be without children. I mean, uh, there is nothing worse than being a childless widow. And Israel is often, you know, later in the poetic literature is depicted as a childless widow. But here is an old couple incapable of making a name or uh, finding endurance. That is that Abraham's experience is a prolonged shame experience. And yet it's not. In other words, it, sh- it would be except for the covering promise of God that he endures the shame or what would normally be a shame experience 
through the strength or through the promise given to him by God. And, of course, the promise, as Paul is going to explain it in Romans, is the, the promise of life. And, and ultimately, that's, you know, if, if shame is what it feels like to die, that the cure for that is to find life in the midst of death. And so this is the unfolding here that God tells them that they're going to have a child, and the description is that Sarah's womb is as good as dead, Abraham is as good as dead, uh, that out of this death then is going to come life. Paul calls this resurrection life. And, of course, it's at this point that Abraham falls on his face laughing. The breaking in that we have here of humor, and Sarah, of course, laughs, and they're going to memorialize the laughter. The laughter is important. Is the laughter in some way simply a laughter of a lack of faith? I think that misses it. No, it's just the like a joke. It's like, you know, uh, that here is an alternative perspective in which death reigned, and now life is breaking into that. Thus, they memorialize the laughter in that they're going to name the child Isaac, it actually means he who laughs. There, there is the sense then, laughter and life then are found in the, the midst of death. The, the story of Abraham and Sarah, it is a kind of motif that will, will repeat itself, but of course that story is key. It tells us, first of all, that with Abraham, here Abraham is the prototype of faith, but what we need to see in Abraham, we have the problem posed to us. And often I, I think we don't see that, you know, that, well, Abraham's problem is precisely the human cure for shame is one that would find itself in home, in country, in family. You know, Christ is going to talk about these things as in some way not adequate. They're not complete. And, of course, that's, the, that's what we're up against in every culture, is that at some level we're going to make the human project displace the divine project. And I think that's part of what's being, you know, that, that's key to what's being undone in the story of Abraham and Sarah. And so long before the law was given and guilt was incurred in a sort of formal sense in regard to the law, Abraham's problem was one of shame. I think that people's understanding of Christianity is often a very much a, a, a sort of a guilt-based understanding, I guess, of what the real human problem is. And I, and, I, and I don't think that we want to take away from that and say that, well, of course, you know, we, we've all, you know, sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But it seems like when you take it from a narrative perspective, as you have been doing, you know, before there was a formal law, now there was the law given that in the day that you eat of the, you know, the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of the good and evil, uh, that you'll die. That's a sort of a, maybe a precursor to the law. And so they do transgress. I guess the, the consequence of that sin is first and foremost, I mean, the first thing that they notice is that they're, they're naked and they're ashamed. And then they start, they start to really disintegrate. And so it's less of a problem of like, oh, no, we were guilty and we need something to take away our guilt. What they're concerned with in the narrative is that I'm ashamed and I need to cover, I need a covering, <laughs> you know. 
Uh, and so it is with the, with the Abraham story, like you were saying. It's like we don't have a child, and we're going to die in this condition, and that means that we are going to be ultimately disintegrated. We don't have any way to go on as a people. And it sounds like what you're saying is, is that God is doing both, that he's taking care of the problem of, of guilt and he's atoning for our sins, but maybe in a more sort of um, existential sort of healing way, he is dealing with our, with our shame. And so how do we, I'm thinking of William Frazier here, and you said you touched upon it a little bit, but you know, how do, how do we participate or share in that life that resurrection life with, with Abraham to overcome shame. And, of course, here's where the problem of the law enters in. The, the law in and of itself, as it's given to Abraham, is a very simple thing. It was the, the sign of the promise. That is, the law was not the thing. The promise was the thing. Life is not in the law, but life is in God and in God's promise. And those two things are going to be confused. The markers of Judaism, you know, that are the law, the circumcision, that doesn't save you. That's not in, in inherently salvific. The law is not inherently salvific. And so the problem that the Jews are going to have with the markers of the law, Paul's going to say, well, that's always the human problem. That's always the human predicament. That is, we would do with the law what we would do with everything. We would find life in the law like we would find life in any symbolic system. The symbol system of the tower, the symbol system of culture, the symbol system of religion. The law is a, another symbol system in which we would in some way use this symbolic order to obtain life. And so the law is simply, the, and the, the Mosaic law, the, the Jewish orientation to the Mosaic law, is a kind of revelation in Paul's explanation of the human problem. What we would do with the law is always what we would do with the symbolic order. It's always we would make the sign the signified. Uh, and Paul says, no, the letter kills, the letter of the law kills, the sign does not contain, the sign of the law does not contain the signified. You could almost turn this around. In other words, it is, again, the object of the ego, is the way in which we, you know, in a Lacanian understanding, that two things come together. The symbolic order is the way in which we come to a recognition of the imaginary. That is, that uh, it's in language, the symbol system, that we uh, actually assign a meaning to our image, our, the, the visual image of ourselves or the bodily image in a Freudian understanding. So that the two things there, the symbolic order, the imaginary, or as John will, will talk about it, the lust of the eyes. You know, what is it that, that the eyes lust after? Well, it's the obtaining of being and the way that we ob obtain being that we would fulfill desire is in and through the symbolic order. The letter kills the symbolic order as an end in and of itself. Or, you know, you can say this in any number of ways that in, in some way we would assign a uh, language or human capacity to obtain truth through language, or we would assign the word, you know, you can go mystical here, you can go Gnostic. 
But once you see this, that the symbolic order itself is assigned a primacy, but is itself part of the impetus of shame, that we just need a covering, and what we would cover ourselves with is ultimately simply a sign. Circumcision, Jewishness, nationalism, religion, family identity, all of those then are a outworking of pride that would cover shame inadequately. And so before pride comes shame in the wisdom literature, before pride comes the fall into shame, all of these things are going to be undone. They, they don't hold us together. The covenant with death, as Isaiah pictures it, is always going to prove inadequate. So you've done a lot of work, obviously, in psychoanalysis and in your book, The Psychotheology of Sin and Salvation. And I want you to talk a little bit about, because this was helpful for me, you know, what is happening in us when there's that, call it a voice or whatever it is, that law or whatever it is, that's basically, it's us, but we're sort of shaming ourselves, right? We're saying it's something in us that's saying you're bad. It's not that just that you've done a bad thing. It's something in us that apparently is uh, divided or alienated or something. And I think that it's difficult to articulate, but that I think everyone kind of knows what we're saying when we say it. And that is, is that there's something in us or in our personality that would put us to shame. And can you talk a little bit about that from not only a psychoanalytic perspective, but I guess a theological sort of understanding. Well, yeah, a good way to think of it biblically, you know, is that we often assign human conscience. We imagine that human, you know, as Jiminy Cricket says, let your conscience be your guide. Well, no, actually your conscience will kill you. Your conscience is in fact your, your worst enemy. Your conscience is not morality. Your conscience is immorality. And this is the whole point, you know, of, again, this is, it's easiest to understand this in terms of the law. Who are the killers? Uh, they're the law keepers. They're the Pharisees. Who kills Christ? It's not the, you know, it's not the prostitutes, the thieves. It's the, the thieves are on the cross with Jesus. It's the Pharisees. It's the Sadducees. It's the religious people. Uh, it's those who would enact the law that in fact are deadly. You can take that and apply it to yourself too. This is, it, it is a psychoanalytic insight, but I think it's an insight to a biblical understanding uh, that the punishing consciousness that Paul describes in seven, Romans 7 and elsewhere, that consciousness is a lying consciousness. It's not telling us the truth. It is an agonistic struggle that Paul describes as the body of death. That is, if you imagine that you can obey this law in your head, in Freudian or Lacanian terms, this is called the superego. Well, the superego is just the, the law. That's the voice of the law in your head. But it's not God's law. That's the law of sin and death in Paul's description. The law of sin and death has a grip on you, and what it would do would cause you to compulsively repeat the same thing over and over. This is a scriptural insight that the dog returns to its vomit, the pig returns to its wallow. 
uh, in Lacanian language or Freudian language, the compulsion to repeat the idea of repetition. You know, in a sense, uh, repeating a good thing is not bad. But, of course, what is happening in the law, the letter of the law that kills, is that this thing, this, I think, this foundation of neurosis, I, I don't know how far to take it. You know, I just think that it, it, that the disease, the human disease, can be traced then to this thing that we're describing. And I don't mean to uh, all physiological, I don't mean in that sense, but in the sense that people are, are most deadly toward themselves and one another in their obeying what we might imagine is our conscience or, or our, our morality. So this is Freud says, you know, your morality is your immorality. That is the drive to obey the, the superego or the law of sin and death. That is deadly. It's deadly for other people, but it's also deadly for yourself. And I think people feel this, you know, what you're describing that, and again, there, there really is a shame about shame. And so we may not want to even articulate it to ourselves, you know, that maybe we're, there's a part of us that would hide even from ourselves. But of course we have a, a you know, an opiate epidemic in our country uh, that, that overdose, overdose deaths are at an all time high well, that, that people kill themselves over this stuff. Uh, you spent over, what was it, 20 years in Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you talk a little bit about how this functions? I, I think that we used to think that, well, you know, in the East, there's sort of a shame culture, but here in the West, it's more of a, of a guilt culture. But I think that you and I in our conversations have kind of come around on that to say, no, I think that it's all probably a shame culture. It just functions maybe slightly differently depending upon the context, but can you talk about maybe some of the differences that you have seen and how this thing works itself works itself out collectively in, say, Japan versus the United States? Yeah, it's almost clear in Japan, and you know, this was Ruth Benedict who went over with the occupation forces. But actually, there was a whole group of psychologists that went over, and what they discovered it's it's very enlightening because that you know she's going to talk about shame cultures and guilt cultures. But it may be just that in Japan, the function of shame is just front and center. First of all, it's used as a tool. Uh, You know, when we talk about shame, it's shame in the eyes of someone. Shame is visual. Shame pertains to being seen or we would want to be hidden. And ultimately, the eyes of other people. But, you know, and this is, you know, Stephen Pattison writes the the book on shame and talks about this, this sense of maybe sometimes the notion of God's omniscience is just more shame than we can endure. But anyway, there is this idea of uh, hiding. And in Japan, hiding is not hidden <laughs> in a sense, because the very language of, you know, Tatamai and Hone, that is, there is my outward face. There's my outward presentation of myself. But there's no confusion. Everybody understands that outward presentation does not pertain to hone or what is inside or the kernel of the person that is hidden away. And this is part of the literature that you're going to in Natsume Soseki, you know, that 
he's he's going to write about this. But all the, the great novelists in Japan, uh, Yukio Mishima writes, you know, the I am a mask. That in some way that that once you expose this in Soseki, you know, the teacher, the sensei, finally reveals to his student his great thing that he's hidden. He reveals his hone. But as he does it, he says, I'm squirting the blood of my heart upon your face. That is that this is a death-dealing exposure that I'm going through, an ultimate shame experience. And so the, the hiddenness is just part of the, the culture. And of course, the what you're really describing is the open manipulation of death. In other words, that to be put to shame in that sort of culture, to be excluded from the cover of the group, you know, the acceptance of the group. There really is no recourse in, in Japan. This is, I think, one of the explanations of the high suicide rate. Once you fall out of, you know, the various things that we would use to clothe ourselves, whether it's the family or the corporation or the school, all of these things are ways of, of dealing with shame. But once those no longer are, are adequate, well, then the exposure results in uh, in literal death by suicide or, or by some, some other means, usually usually suicide. And so shame is, it, it's a continual and very cruelly implemented. I'm not saying that, you know, that there is a sense that what is done to people there, I, I don't think we would do here just because of the way that it's openly manipulated. That is the group will manipulate the individual. And so in some way it's always there on the surface, but then I, I recognize that, well, this same thing is occurring in scripture, that this is the whole point of the story of Abraham, you know, the family, the, the, the country, the, the things that we would normally use. Uh, and so once you begin to, to see that that's the problem and that, that Christianity speaks to that problem, that's a very, painful way to live that to, to talk about a cure for your shame oh well that that speaks to people because now we understand we have a diagnosis that fits the situation i'm afraid that so much of the diagnosis that we have of the human predicament in the west in in fact doesn't really fit the reality that we have you know we're never quite sure oh you're guilty of something you're going to be punished for it but shame uh, speaks of an immediate experience of a kind of punishing sort of life. I want to I want to propose something to you to see if you if you agree with it, and that is um, that I'm wondering if the resolution then to shame isn't something like humility. So you know what you get in those different narratives that you were telling is then a sort of humble acceptance of one's ultimate sort of powerlessness in the face of death, one's hopelessness. The vocation of the prophet then is to come along and to oftentimes, you know, you, you told a story in class one time, you said, you know, well, let me, you know, yeah, I can kind of crystallize the, the experience of shame for you. Imagine if you're kind of, you know, in your bedroom and you're looking at something on your computer that you shouldn't and suddenly the door swings open and it's like you're, you're, you know, you're caught, you know, you're caught red handed. It's like, you're, you know, you're frozen in time. It's like you've, um, 
you're, you've been put to shame. And like you said earlier, that, that would be a situation that you probably couldn't endure. You either have to run away or you'd have to, you'd have to do something to put an end to that experience. But it does seem like there's a, maybe like a redemptive aspect to the vocation of the prophet there whenever he's sort of pulling up the skirt or pulling back the bed sheets or whatever other metaphor you want to use, that maybe the entry point then into dealing with one's uh, shame and the sort of consequent identity that's built upon it, would it be something on the order of humility? Yeah, I, if, if we don't attach a wrong understanding here, uh, I think the way you describe it is good. That is that the problem in pride is that it's always false. All pride is a kind of false pride, obviously. That the things that we would take pride in are, are going to, in some way, expose us to shame. That is because they're going to fail at some point. They're not going to endure. So uh, what we need is an enduring cure. And, of course, that's where the humility comes in, is that what we would do as humans is that we imagine that we have access to something enduring, that we would have innate immortality, or that we have uh, an enduring name or an enduring country. And so pride is always a pride in our own ability. Uh, as the serpent says, you know, you won't die, you'll be like gods. And so we're in con you know, what it means to, to be like gods is to not turn to the true source of life, which is to relinquish pride in those things that we imagine would give life, and to be open to receiving life from outside of ourselves, our capacities, human capacities. And so I think that's the, the opening of humility. And of course, that's the, the whole characteristic that is attributed to Christ, that he, he is a gentle, he's humble, he's that, that here is one who does not need to establish himself. And of course, that's the, the impetus behind pride is that, that we need to grab all the gusto we can. It's always a kind of zero-sum game, and you can't afford to take second place. You can't afford to be at the bottom. You can't afford to let other people get ahead of you or to be stepped on. But it's in strength, then, or in recognizing that life is not within ourselves, but life, then, is, is a gift from God. It's in God's grace that gives us the strength of humility, and humility, then, being this capacity to check out of the zero-sum game, that we're, not, we're no longer going to play that game. And, of course, there's many spheres that you can play it in that that that's kind of the ironically you know this is most people don't read anselm enough to know that he's depicting all of atonement theory as one big zero sum game uh that's just a total misunderstanding of the abundance of life that is available to us in christ and once you understand well then you don't need to you, you have no need to gather into barns. You don't have, have no need for a kind of an abundance, a too-muchness of, of, of things, because the adequacy is never, it's not within yourself, but it's within God. So that understanding of humility as over and against pride, yeah, I think that it does speak to the cure. 
I guess I was asking that question because I'm wondering how we, because we want to segue then into the life of Christ, which you just did right there a little bit so that we can get to the cross and the resurrection. But before we get there, I guess I'm wondering how God becoming a human being uh, sort of addresses our condition and how do we, how do we appropriate, you know, the life of Christ in such a way that we don't have to do identity in the way that we would normally do apart from Christ. You know, that is making a name for ourselves, like you were referring back to Genesis 11, that the one way to do it is to make a great name for yourself. Mm. You know, the, the other way to do it in Genesis 12 is for God to make your name great. And so I'm wondering how the actual incarnation of God, you know, the Son, helps us. How does it heal us? How do we appropriate that fact and make it our own in such a way that it helps us to uh, become the people we were created to be. Yeah, I th- you know, the alienation that you see in Genesis is, in a sense, you can already see the disruption that Adam had said, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, that there is a unity in male-female relationship, and apparently, you know, that was to grow. And, of course, this is going to be taken up in the New Testament that Paul's going to describe this. I don't think it's simply a return to Genesis or to the male-female relationship, but it's a fulfillment of that. That is that alienation from the other uh, is then the situation in which Cain kills Abel in which the murderous generation of Noah arises. But it's always the situation of human murder that in some way this identity through difference or the identity over and against the other, you know, this is the great Hegelian insight, I think, uh, that it is uh, necessarily violent, that you're going to obtain, there's only so much stuff to go around in the way you're going to obtain it. You know, this is the Oedipus complex. This is the, the, the great insight into the idea that well, the father is both the antagonist, the model, but the enemy. You know, this is Rene Girard. Uh, in his picture of the the sacred and the profane and in some way come together. I think all of that is undone in the person and work of Christ because what we have then is uh, life incarnate. We have the, the, you know, the idea of the logos that here is one that is opening to us the, the participation in who he is no longer, and I think that we can do this wrong, you know, we can make Christ an object like any other object that, uh, strangely enough, I think we've missed the point. The point is not to objectify Christ. The point is not, uh, you know, even the idea of faith in Christ, I think, can be a misconstrual. Christ is not an icon for us to put out there like our own ego, you know, an image in the mirror. But Christ is one in whom we participate. Here is the opening of participation in life in God. I think that's the the significance. And so Christ then continually demonstrates this opening that is what we call love, you know, that the love for neighbor, the love for God, the love ultimately that uh, we come back to life and love and truth and you know, all of these things converge in this understanding that we have access to other people, we have access to God that has been closed off to us in a kind of 
hostility is the way that Paul describes it. There's a wall of hostility. It's not that God manufactures that hostility. It's that people manufacture it. It's, it's a psychological reality, that wall in the temple. It's certainly, it's a social reality. It's a cultural reality. And so Christ is breaking down that wall of hostility. There, that's the idea of reconciliation. There is an opening so that it is no longer life based upon a zero-sum gain of uh, obtaining, but that we have access to life and love and to other people. So I've often, you know, wondered, Jesus could have died in any number of ways. You know, the, uh, he could have been stoned to death. You know, he could have been beheaded. But in the wisdom and in the providence of God, Jesus was crucified, which uh, was, you know, I think a, just a method of publicly humiliating and shaming anyone who would sort of stand up to Rome or any sort of revolutionary or slave who would rebel, so that it was an object lesson. I forget, you quoted someone a couple of weeks ago, and I thought it was a woman. She said it really well. But it was basically like an object lesson, like, hey, this is what happens uh, whenever you defy the powers. And so I'm wondering why, why the cross, why the shame, you know, the particular sort of shame of hanging naked on a cross where one can't control their bowels and things like this. Why go to that? Why would, you know, the Son of God go to that particular extreme, that sort of shameful extreme? What is he trying to tell us? or show us or do for us. Yeah, I think that there, you know, that other methods, you know, actually beheading, well, that's a, that's a kind of privilege to be beheaded. That's something that Roman is preserved for Roman citizens. Stoning, well, that's something that, that uh, Jews do primarily, not just Jews. But actually, a crucifixion played a particular role, and that is that the only people subject to crucifixion were almost, they, they were not really counted as humans. And this is where I like the work of Giorgio Agamben. I think he's bringing out a biblical insight here when he talks about Homo Saker. That is that uh, this, this dates back to the early Greek thought that, you know, in the city, in the polis, there is the organization of life that we call human life. But outside the city, there is life, there is zoe, but that's just homo sacred. That's, that's, not, that's not human life. That's just bare life. And that's the idea here of a bare life, of, you know, not even a human life. One that is subject to crucifixion is not even an untouchable. They're not even ranked as part of the city. They're not covered under the law, any law, Roman law, Jewish law. This is one that is completely rejected. And so Christ being crucified outside the city is not just a geographical fact, but I think it's symbolic of the reality that this sort of humiliation is the ultimate in shame experience. That's the whole point of the cross or crosses. Crosses were a warning, you know, like lynching was a warning uh, that you people, or not even people, that you beasts, you know, are subject to this kind of death that you can be killed by citizens, and of course, you don't have citizenship. And so Christ is enduring the shame 
that we would load upon certainly the scapegoat, but that we would load on anyone that is put up is cast outside the city. Actually, you know, there there is a kind in Agamben's picture, the Homo sacer doesn't really qualify as a religious sacrifice. It's not that good. It's not good enough for religious sacrifice. So there is the sense that here is the a, a kind of going as far outside of the city. Here is the ultimate shame experience that Christ is enduring. And of course, part of the endurance is to expose the unreality of it. That for many of us, and I think that's the psychological fact, that's the, just something we, we just kind of instinctively know, that that would be the worst thing that could possibly happen to someone. And so that reality, the reality of the ultimate shame experience, that's worthy of spending your life in avoidance of. You know, we would do everything. We would give everything. We would put all of our effort to put off that shame. And, of course, the point is, well, no, actually that reality is overcome, that thing that controls us. Uh, it controls us psychologically, this, you know, maybe more than we're aware of. It controls us socially that Paul is going to refer to as fear of death. I'm always uh, afraid that, you know, this notion of fear, we might imagine it is necessarily a conscious fear. I think that what we're describing, and this is, again, Freud and Lacan, it is such a deep-seated fear Freud will talk about a kind of unconscious controlling fear. I think it's that deep that to talk to, to name it fear of death may be kind of inadequate. The fear of being put to shame. You know, all the little shames that we experience in our lives, you know, whatever they might be, whether it's the, the shame of being denigrated by as a racist, by being fired from a job, the the little cruelties that people can do to us. They prick us in such a way, but I think that we can name all of those things a kind of shame experience that is tapped in, tapping into a deep-seated fear. And so the whole point of the death and resurrection of Christ is to move through and expose that, and through resurrection then, of course, to expose that the grave, in fact, is not, final. It's not an ultimate reality. It does not need to be the reality that is determinative of our lives. So it gives us a, a new basis upon which we too then need not live our lives in fear of shame or the following the law of sin and death, but we can endure the shame uh, in the way that Christ did. I, I, this morning I wrote on or published a little blog on John Lewis. I think he's a fine example of here's a Christian man who uh, spent much of his early life getting beat up, being conked on the head, and yet he just endured it with great dignity and love. I think there he's an exemplar of a, of a, uh, a Christian model of what it means that we can expose in the same way that Christ exposed the kind of unreality that people imagine is a final or ultimate reality. Yeah. So the, you know, the great mystery at the heart of Christianity is an empty tomb. 
right, where, where we would imagine, I think, outside of Christ, I think that the only reality that you're really left with is the reality of death, the ultimate reality of, you know, forget about taxes. You can always not pay your taxes, but mm-hmm. death is certain, you know, um, apart from Christ. And so, you know, part of the tradition, especially in the East, you know, they talk about uh, God's victory over death by, uh, in Christ, you know, trampling down death by death. That is, um, willingly then uh, taking up the cross and enduring the shame, marching in, as it were, into the, sort of the enemy's territory and conquering, overthrowing it uh, by, you know, Jesus entrusting his life, like Abraham, right, to the Father, in that culminating sort of vindication where the Father, by the power of the Spirit, raises Jesus from the dead. And so that resurrection life, that, that you know, that hope that we can share in that gives us the sort of faith to say, well, death doesn't have the last word Uh, that we can, we don't have to live subject to the, to shame or to the fear of being put to shame. I think that's it. I think that's it. That it's addressing a real world predicament with a real world lived reality. Uh, uh, That gives us an alternative to that kind of unreality that, Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.